Years ago, we had a fellow, he walked into Calvary Chapel and took a seat on the back row. All was fine as I finished up my Bible study and started to wrap up, but that's when this gentleman, he rose to his feet and he asked me if he could say a word to the congregation. Well, I was a little suspicious. And since part of my job is to protect God's people, I told the man that he could tell me what he wanted to say, and if I felt it was an appropriate message, then I'd let him share it with those who wanted to stay and listen. The man was obviously unhappy that I hadn't given him the floor. Well, when he walked up to the podium, I asked him what he wanted to communicate to our church. He grunted, he pointed to his Bible. I said, well, that's fine. I like the Bible too, but what in the Bible do you want to read? He turned to Zechariah chapter 14. He pointed down to the page. I asked him again. I said, well, you know, I like Zechariah too. I said, but you got to tell me what in Zechariah do you want to read? Finally, he pointed to Zechariah chapter 14 verse 12. It's a judgment on God's people, on God's enemies, not God's people, but on God's enemies. And it reads as follows. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. I can only imagine the grisly application he had in store for Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. Well, I explained to the man that the passage that he had read was addressed to the enemies of God, not the family of God. And I wasn't about to let him stroll in, hijack the pulpit, and lay a guilt trip on the good folks that Jesus died to save and wanted to encourage. Then I told him that if he had any guts, he'd take his message to the streets and share it with the people who didn't know the Lord. Of course, the fellow bristled up. Well, his final words as he stomped out the door was to accuse yours truly of quenching the Holy Spirit. But as I mulled over his indictment, I sensed the Lord speak to me. Sandy, you were quenching a spirit, but it sure wasn't the Holy Spirit. See, no pastor wants to be guilty of quenching or hindering the work of God's Spirit. But there are some spirits that need to be quenched. Jude would tell us that a big part of being a pastor is quenching the spirits that need to be quenched. See, a pastor is like a forest ranger. He teaches people to build campfires as he helps people put out wildfires. Realize the term pastor, it means shepherd. And a shepherd's job is twofold. He feeds the flock. He sees to it that the sheep are well fed. But he also has to protect the flock and make sure that the sheep aren't eaten. If all a pastor does is feed and feed and feed and never warns the sheep of the wolves that threaten them, he's only fattening them up for the slaughter. A pastor needs to both feed and warn. And this is what Pastor Jude does in his short letter. This morning, by way of introduction, I want us to read all 25 verses get an overview of this book of Jude, and then, like a pizza, we're going to cut it up into four slices, and we're going to spend the month of July chewing on the book of Jude. Well, verse 1 begins, 
Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ." But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carrying about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people, to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. 
And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Verse 1 introduces us to the author. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There are three Judases or Judes given prominence in the New Testament. First, there was the infamous Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. Second, there was an apostle, one of the original 12, Judas, the son of James. And third, there was Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Obviously, the traitor is not the author of this letter. Neither is Jude, the son of James, for here the author says that he's the brother of James. In fact, in verse 20, he speaks of the apostles in the third person, implying that he wasn't one. Thus, the Jude who pens this letter is most likely the sibling of our Lord Jesus. Remember, Mary and Joseph, they had at least six other sons and daughters after Mary birthed Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 55, lists the family and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters. The author of our letter was both our Lord's half-brother and his kid brother. Imagine growing up in the shadow of Jesus. This was James and Jude's lot in life. I'm sure it had its pluses, but it also had to have had some negatives. I mean, imagine their mom always scolding them. Why can't you boys behave like Jesus? Your big brother makes straight A's. What are you doing? Jude, a C in conduct? Jesus made another A. Well, if that were the case, you can understand why these boys might have grown resentful or jealous. It's common, younger brothers often carry a chip on their shoulders anyway. Just an inkling of pride would have kept these brothers from conceding Jesus' true identity. James and Jude, no doubt, walked around singing, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. (laughs) And apparently, that attitude had developed among these two. In fact, John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us that prior to Jesus' resurrection, all his brothers and sisters refused to believe in him. It wasn't until the siblings saw Jesus that he had conquered death, that he had risen from the grave. Only then were their doubts dispelled. It was after his resurrection that all the evidence was in. The brothers were now able to connect all the dots. Jesus was indeed who he said he was, not only their brother, but he was the son of God. Not only did Jude reach this conclusion, but so did James. He became a leader in the Jerusalem church. He even wrote the New Testament letter that carries his name. But this Jude, likewise, he repented. He turned. He followed Jesus. Imagine the moment it hit him that his big brother was also Lord and King. Could you worship your brother? I mean, Jude had to have humbled himself. Someone probably encouraged him. Hey, Jude, 
Don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. And hey, Jude did make it better when he accepted his brother as his Lord and Savior and sang his praise. Just a beetle. Of course, all this means that Jude could have greeted folks with a, with a pretty haughty introduction, couldn't he? I mean, Jude could have written to his readers, Jude, brother of Jesus the Messiah. Or he could have stretched it even further. Jude, brother of the very Son of God. That would carry even greater clout. He could have made up business cards with these titles, you know. I mean, if Jude had been a name dropper, wow, could he have dropped the mic? He could have pulled the trump card and ended every argument. Jude could have appealed to his earthly relationship to Jesus. Yet Jude no longer thought in those terms. He had a new connection to Jesus. He was now his bondservant. Rather than haughty, Jude was humble. He had bowed to Jesus and wasn't about to steal the spotlight. He says, Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Understand, a bondservant was a special category of slave. Realize in ancient Israel, slavery was a way to pay off a person's debts. Rather than bankruptcy, a debtor would become his creditor's slave. And yet some slaves had such kind and benevolent masters, they found that they could fare better in their master's house than on their own. And so after absolving their debt and gaining their freedom, a grateful slave might continue to serve his master, no longer out of obligation, but now out of love. This is what made him a bond or a love servant. And this was how Jude felt about his Lord Jesus. Jude owed Jesus a debt he could never repay. Jesus is creator. He is redeemer. We all owe him for both physical life and spiritual life. Jesus, through Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. Hey, we're in hock to Jesus. But you know, once he's been your master, once you've been his slave for a length of time, you begin to realize just how great Jesus treats his servants. You're drawn to his grace and his gentleness and his faithfulness. After a while, duty becomes delight. We find ourselves serving Jesus, not because we have to, but because we certainly want to. We, too, become bondservants of Jesus Christ. And then Jude writes, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What was true of Jude's readers is true of all Christians. We've been called and sanctified and preserved. Hey, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've received a call. At some point in the past, heaven got in touch with you. God knew your number. He knew where you lived. God made a wireless call, and he made it personal. He communicated his love and his desire for you to be saved, and apparently you answered that call. And I'm glad you did. But now the question becomes, have you pushed number one to speak to the operator? 
Or have you punched pound to unsubscribe? God wants an ongoing conversation with you. That's why he calls again and again and again if we'll listen. You know, after 20 years, if my boys are out in the yard and I want to see them home, I'll shout, hoo-dee-hoo. That's our signal. That's understood amongst the Adams. That's the call of the Adams. That's the call of the wild in the Adams family. Hoo-dee-hoo. And they know it when they hear it. And you know God's call, don't you? If God's called you, you know what it sounds like. You know God's call. That's why when God calls you, you need to answer. And whoever God calls, the next step is to sanctify. For he sets us apart for his purposes. He he wants us. He saves us. He draws us out. He calls us out of the world. But then he sets us apart, makes us special for his purposes. God loves you from the start. But after he calls you, he fashions you into somebody that he not only loves, but that he really likes. He makes you happy and healthy and even holy. Don't you want to be sweetened by God? Sanctified, rather than remain your old petrified and putrefied self. People think of sanctification as a straitjacket. But when you conform to God's will, you become what you were made to be from the beginning. You become your real self, your true self. You're set free from your twistedness And you become all that God intended for you to be. Sanctification is a form of great blessing. And once he calls and once he sanctifies, then he preserves. I mean, whoever God spends time calling and makes the effort to sanctify, he wants to keep. He refuses to let anyone snatch us away. To God, it's finders keepers. God calls us and sanctifies us and preserves us. This is what God does to us. But here's what God gives to us. Mercy, peace, and love. Mercy is a beautiful thing. Mercy is love we don't deserve. Man, I love mercy. Peace is love that has some nerve, that doesn't come unraveled in the storm. We need God's peace. And agape is love that's willing to serve Hey, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not just added to you, but multiplied to you. God's gift to us is love squared. Mercy times mercy. Peace times peace. Love times love. This is what you get if you follow Jesus. Now in verse 3, Jude tells us about the unique occasion of his writing. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you, Concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. What Jude wrote was not his original theme. His initial desire was to discuss our common salvation. It would have been a positive, uplifting message, super encouraging to everyone. But the Lord was doing something else in Jude's heart. The Holy Spirit had laid upon him a pressing necessity that he couldn't shake. Jude saw storm clouds forming. 
He heard the enemy scheming. He saw the church slumbering. He had to shift gears. Rather than a soothing sonnet, it was time to sound an alarm. Jude's readers needed to be exhorted to contend earnestly for the faith. When false doctrine threatens the church, all other issues have to be put on hold until the lie is revealed, until the half-truth gets exposed, until the deceivers either repent or get run out of town. Jude had probably poured him a glass of lemonade, made himself comfortable in his lazy boy. He was playing some soft R&B in the background. It would only take him a couple of hours to pen a comfy letter to the believers the Lord had laid on his heart. But oh, God had more for Jude to write. God stirred him up. He interrupted Jude with a pressing necessity. And let me say, this explains my choice in teaching you the book of Jude. Quite frankly, I had no intention of teaching this letter. I had planned some other summertime sermons, but the Lord over the last few weeks has kept drawing me back to this book. In a day when it's difficult to find a church that hasn't shied away from the truth, in a day when pastors will compromise hard thoughts to be non-confrontational and politically correct, in a day when congregations, carnal congregations, expect to be coddled and catered to, I believe, as with Jude, God is exhorting you and I to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. All last week, the Lord kept sending little signs across my path, steering me back to the book of Jude. He kept pointing out these lessons that Jude was teaching about deception and about false teachers. The final straw was Thursday night when this older gentleman, a Jehovah's Witness, real nice guy, but a Jehovah's Witness, he dropped by my house and he invited me to a rally. He was so winsome, you would never think that he was sending people to hell, but he was. Who would imagine that spiritually speaking, this sweet old man had poison dripping from the fangs in his mouth? I was reminded by God that he takes false doctrine seriously even when it's spoken from a cuddly teddy bear. In Jude's estimation, a polite discourse on the facets of our common salvation would have been a luxury. But what was far more pressing was the defense of the faith. I read of a retiring pastor who was reflecting on the state of the church that he was leaving. He was saddened by his congregation's compromised faith and their slide toward a more liberal theology. And he felt that the apostasy was his fault. He explained what he had done wrong. He said, I always told people what to believe. My great mistake is that I never clearly taught my people what not to believe. See, some churches are so careful to be known for what they're for rather than for what they're against that they never voice their objection to anything even diabolical doctrines that are the enemy of the truths they value. The point is, it's not enough to just trumpet the truth. We also need to expose lies and deviations when the people that we love are in danger of being duped. And trust me, people today are being duped. 
Christians today are forsaking biblical Christianity. Or as Jude puts it, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. In a 2014 Pew Research survey, only one in three Americans now believe in moral truth as absolute. Two-thirds adhere to a situational ethic where right and wrong depends on circumstances rather than God-given laws. In the same survey, it was asked, where do you go for guidance on right and wrong? More Americans now trust in common sense than in the Christian scriptures. And as to the Bible, though 61% of Americans believe it to be the word of God, only half of that percentage believe it can be taken literally in all that it teaches. In 2016, Lifeway Research did a survey that gave some interesting insights into the theology of America. For example, though 70% of us believe there is only one true God, 64%, that's two-thirds, now believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, Christianity and Judaism and even Islam. Just 54%, that's barely half of America, now believe that faith in Jesus alone as their Savior is the only way to receive God's free gift of eternal life. That means that 46% believe Jesus is not the only way. 52% of Americans believe that good deeds can help earn you a spot in heaven. 65% believe that though we all sin a little, most people are naturally good. Only 40% of Americans believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. And 56% believe that the Holy Spirit is a cosmic force, not a person. Here's how bad it really is. Among Americans, the most quoted Bible verse is, God helps those who help themselves. The only problem with that is that it's not a Bible verse at all. It's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Yet 82% of all Americans say it comes from the Bible. I'm afraid we are not doing a very good job contending for the faith. And realize this is everybody's job. This is not just the pastor's job on Sunday. It's your job around the water cooler at work and in conversations with your friends. It's your job to teach God's truth to your kids and to your grandkids. All Christians are called on to contend earnestly for the faith. For notice, this is the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. In other words, God isn't adding any new truth. The Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So we better defend it to the death. It's what we've got. God's menu isn't getting updated. The Old Testament scriptures that were confirmed by Jesus and the New Testament letters that issued from the pen of his apostles is the truth given by God once and for all. Hey, we're not waiting on God to release Christianity 2.0. You don't update the app. The Bible you possess is God's authoritative word for all time and for all people. Thus, we need to contend earnestly in our defense of the Bible, in our understanding of it, in our teaching of it, in our living out of it. 
We need to fight for God's truth. And pay attention to the strong language that Jude uses here. The Greek term contend earnestly, it means to struggle or to wrestle. We need to go to the mat for biblical truth. Oh my, I'll never forget the tiny bit of wrestling I did in PE class. That mat time was the longest three minutes of my life. Wrestling is intense and grueling and exhausting. When the whistle blew, I was drained, man. I I was totally spent. And yet this is the kind of effort that we should give the proclamation and explanation of God's truth. How can you take the attitude? Well, I, I just don't like to get into arguments and heated debates. Yeah, you know, passionate conversations just make me feel uncomfortable. I'd prefer to talk about the weather. If that's your take, you'd have a problem with Jude. Jude would have a problem with you. You can't be afraid to mix it up in the arena of ideas. Some of us aren't even willing to engage other family members for fear of creating a riff. Guys, if what we believe is true, our silence might just create a rift for, et- for eternity. If we don't speak up, the truth won't get heard. How can it get under another person's skin? How can it challenge their assumptions and get taken to heart if we're not passionate about what we say we believe? When we're winsome and eager advocates, then the Holy Spirit will convict people and go to work to make things better. Remember the song, Hey Jude, don't be afraid. The minute you let her get under your skin, then you begin to make it better, 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 better now. I get carried away, I'm sorry. It's a beetle, it's a beetle. But you get the point. When it comes to people's minds and hearts, you got to go out and you got to give it to her. We need to get under people's skin with the truth. We got to grapple with the issues ourselves and then we need to be shrewd in our engagement. We can't just shy away. In the coffee shop and in the hair salon, on the airplane and on the martyr train, we need to be bold witnesses. Years ago, I read Billy Graham's autobiography, and in the final chapter, he asked this, is it arrogance or narrow-mindedness to claim that there is only one way of salvation and that the way we follow is the right way? I think not. Do we consider it arrogant or narrow-minded when a doctor points us to the one medicine that will cure us of a particular disease? The human race is infected with the disease of sin and God has given us the remedy. Dare we do anything less than urge people to apply that remedy to their lives? Dr. Graham concludes, over the last 60 years, I have crossed paths with people who hold every kind of religious and philosophical view imaginable. Often I am moved by their commitment, but as the years have gone by, I have become even more convinced of the uniqueness and truth of the gospel of Christ. In his book, Billy Graham goes on to explain the reasons he's so sure of the gospel, the authority of the Bible, the uniqueness of Jesus, the proof of his resurrection, the changed lives 
that have issued from its preaching. We too need to be equally sure of God's word and relentless in its defense and declaration. Four, we are not the only people trying to persuade hearts and minds. Notice verse four. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude had encountered certain men, ungodly men. They were obviously false teachers who had secretly infiltrated the church. They were denying the truth about God and his grace. As a pastor, I really don't like this picture of folks creeping around the church unnoticed. (laughs) Just creeping around, man. It's not good to have people creeping. It's not good. It's not good to have people creeping around the church unnoticed, man. These guys were literally creeps. Their motives were sinister. Their methods were sneaky. Condemnation had been their destination for a long time. They were the enemies of God and of his truth, even while they pretended to be godly. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 had warned, there will be false teachers among you. Well, here Jude tells us that they're already here. And for the last 2,000 years, there's still spiritual creeps that get into the church. We still are faced with false teachers. And notice it's not just God's truth that they attack. It's also God's grace. This makes sense. It's his grace that saves us, so naturally the devil would want to obscure its meaning. Jude tells us that they turned the grace of God into lewdness. The word lewdness speaks of a license to do evil, an unbridled bent toward lustful behavior. And this is how God's enemies try to distort grace. They they use grace to justify their own sin and selfishness. They say, oh, we've been set free from the law to do as we please. But that's not grace. Yes, under grace, we have been set free from the law, but not to do as we please. The object of grace is to enjoy a relationship pleasing to God. Grace sets us free from the law, not to act lawlessly, but to love. True liberty produces love for God and love for others, not the license to just serve myself. Back in March of 1998, the Atlanta Constitution, they ran a news story. It was entitled, Praying for a Successful Heist. When I read it, I couldn't believe it. The article read, according to a federal indictment in Des Moines, Iowa, Kenneth Ray Bruner led his seven accomplices in prayer, asking for God's protection just before they set out to knock off Herman's fine jewelry. I'm not making this up. (laughs) Bruner acknowledged, according to the indictment, that they were going to do bad things, but they were not bad people. No one was hurt in the robbery, and everyone was behind bars the next day. (laughs) 
But this is how people today think. They are so blind to God's truth or they are such abusers of God's grace that they see no contradiction at all between being born again and robbing banks or sleeping with their boyfriend or pilfering from the company or fudging on their income tax or cheating on their spouse or looking at porn. God's grace frees us from condemnation and guilt so that we can know God and enjoy God and walk in the power of God's spirit. But when his spirit enters our spirit, changes begin to occur from the inside out. If you say you're a Christian, yet you're not becoming more like Jesus, there's a problem. Something is wrong. I ran across another set of disturbing statistics recently which describe the similarities between people who say they're Christians and people who make no such claim. The survey reported 27% of non-Christians volunteer their time to nonprofit organizations during the week. Only 29% of born-again Christians do likewise. 48% of non-Christians gave money to a nonprofit organization in the past month. Less than that. Barely 48% of Christians gave an offering to their church. 49% of non-Christians try to influence another person's opinion last week. Again, less than that, 47% of born-again Christians tried to do the same. 16% of non-Christians watched an X-rated movie in the last three months, whereas 9% of born-again Christians saw an X-rated movie in the last three months. Tragically, there's not a lot of difference between the behaviors of believers and unbelievers. And Jude says this discrepancy denies the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase born again implies a change has to take place or has taken place in my very nature. I've been born again. I'm different and it's working its way out. If you're truly born again, you'll be different than you once were. You'll love instead of hate. You'll give instead of take. You'll care instead of stare right past the need. You'll obey God instead of go your own way. Grace will make you more gracious and graceful and grace-filled, not give you a license to lewdness. And this was just the beginning of Jude's rebuke of the false teachers and spiritual creeps. Jude's letter is really the perfect book to start on the 4th of July weekend. For though it is short in length, it doesn't lack for fireworks. What Jude, when Jude writes, sparks fly, this pastor is going to use some tough language, some startling pictures. He's going to tell it like it is. He's even going to make some stark and unflattering comparisons. In essence, Jude is going to lace up his boxing gloves. He takes his own advice to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. There is a battle raging today for the souls of men and women. It's being fought inside and outside the church. And in every skirmish, Somebody wins and somebody loses. A human soul is either saved or lost. And as Jude realized, this 
is a pressing necessity. How can our goal be to live a stress-free life when there is such a struggle going on? I'm asking you, don't you think it's time that you laced on your gloves and that you stepped into the fight? Father, thank you.